Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you. Glad you've chosen to worship with us today. Um, we did leave off one test question, and that is, how many of you are really into the spirit of Christmas? How many of you? Okay, let, let me hear, let's hear some noise. Let's hear. How many of you are really into the spirit of Christmas? And how many of you are trying to get in the spirit of Christmas? Okay, like I thought you'd say, bah humbug, you know. Anyway, uh, Christmas message is on December the 18th. For now, we're continuing our study in the book of James. Uh, James is a half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the first ever church in Jerusalem. And uh, as we said, James' congregation has been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They've been run out of their homes. They've uh, been run out of town. They uh, are living under pressure and with intense persecution, and they've not fared well. Uh, the hard times seem to have hardened their hearts, and their trials and troubles have left them troubled inside. And in the core of the being, deep in their hearts, uh, they're conflicted. They're struggling with doubts and concerns, and they're tempted to think that because God has allowed all these trials to come into their lives, that maybe God doesn't care about them. Maybe God's withholding good from them. Maybe they even feel like God has abandoned them. And just like us, when doubts like this come, we can kind of be double-minded and waver back and forth. I mean, we believe in God and we want to trust Him. We want to believe that He is good and great and gracious, but in hard times, sometimes there's no visible evidence of His goodness. And so the temptation is always present to do whatever it takes to relieve the pressure, take matters into our own hands. And with every trial, there's a potential temptation to take matters into your own hands, to defend yourself, to demand your rights, to indulge yourself, to look out for number one, to favor those you think can help you. And in trials, we tend to see everything through a clouded, self-focused emotional lens because it's hard to understand how a good and powerful God would allow bad things to come into your life or bad things to come into a relationship. I'm just curious, anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There are two ways to respond in trials, and James talks about these two ways uh, in chapter 3, verse 13, the passage that Matt Dinsky taught on two weeks ago, and he did a great job unpacking this. But uh, I want to read it again as a review and a preview for what comes next. James 3.13, James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast about it and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness, in other words, that kind of living by heavenly wisdom, is sown in peace by those who make peace. James says there's two ways to live that promote uh, peace in relationships. One reflects putting our faith into action, the other doesn't. There's heavenly wisdom that teaches us to live in a humble, 
uh, peaceable, merciful way towards other people. This is wisdom based on what God says and not what the world says. And God says, I allow trials to come into your life to strengthen you and, and mature you and to refine your faith, to build endurance into you. That's wisdom. God says, I allow hard times to come because I want you to learn how to live out your faith in good times and in bad times. Because if your faith doesn't express itself in visible, tangible actions in bad times, it's not going to do you or anybody else any good. That's heavenly wisdom. God says, in trying times, it's best to listen more than you speak because an untamed tongue is like a fire and it can get you into even, even more trouble. That is heavenly wisdom. And God's wisdom always results in peace. Peace with God, peace with each other, and inner peace. <clears throat> but you can also choose. A believer can also choose to live by earthly wisdom, an earthly way of thinking, human way of thinking, that promotes selfishness and disorder and all kinds of conflict. Two ways uh, uh, of approaching trials, relationship trials in, in particular. One way is to look out for number one, assert yourself, indulge yourself, demand your way, and God's way, which says look out for the interests of others, serve others, yield your rights in order to make peace and preserve relationships. Now, James, obviously, he wouldn't be talking about all this stuff if, uh, if there weren't serious problems in these churches. He, he, and uh, in fact, most of the New Testament letters, letters were written to address problems and conflicts in the church, like in the church in Rome and Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and Thessalonica. They were all filled with conflicts and problems. And not a lot has changed in 2,000 years. It, it, and it, it always kind of surprises me when I hear that people are surprised at the problems and conflicts that show up in churches. It surprises me because the church is as susceptible to conflict as any other human organization because Christians battle with selfishness, selfishness just like any, anybody else or everybody else. And any time jealousy and self, uh, selfish ambition exist, it has the potential to infect an entire congregation. So peace and unity are essential characteristics of Christian community, of Christian relationships. And what James is calling for is a culture of peace. But we will not be able to establish a culture of peace unless we embrace what James says next. Chapter 4, verse 1, James asks another question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, how would you answer that question? What causes fights and conflicts and disagreements among you? I mean, why is it that you can't get along with certain people? And all of us can point to someone we don't get along with. I mean, it's for some of you, unfortunately, it may be the person you stood at an altar with long ago and made your most solemn promise. Uh, or maybe it's somebody at work who got promoted and you felt like you deserved the promotion. Or maybe it's that neighbor who doesn't understand that their stuff is supposed to be in their yard and not in yours. Amen. <laughs> yeah, right. All of us have people in our lives that we don't get along with. And the thing is, if I were to ask you why you don't get along with that person, you would say exactly what I would say. And I would say it's because they did or it's their fault. See, well, she won't listen to me. He broke his promise to me. He got the job I wanted. It doesn't make sense because I'm more qualified. 
We all point out there. It's what they did or didn't do that's caused all the problems. And it may very well be that the person did do some terrible, awful, deceitful, emotionally abusive things to you. But James says, it's time we look below the surface to the source, to the root cause of conflict. And so James does this deep dive into all this, but before we look at what he has to say, I want to make you a promise, and that is, if you stay open to what God says and let what God says go deep into your heart, then I promise you that this truth has the potential to set you free from many of the internal struggles that accompany relational conflicts that you keep finding yourself in. If you allow the Holy Spirit riding through the words James writes here in this text, if you allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, you could walk out of here this morning with a brand new perspective on relational conflicts because this one simple truth has the potential to set you free from going through the rest of your life blaming everything and everyone else for your unhappiness and discontentment. So James says, stay with me. Here's a bit of heavenly wisdom that you desperately need to hear. Let's look below the surface at the real cause of quarrels and conflicts. Let's look at the real cause of the missing piece in your life. So here is wisdom from above. Chapter 4, verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Now, notice carefully how James words these two questions. He says, what causes these conflicts among you? Don't they come from within you? See that? Among you, within you. He says, your temptation is to think that the reason you have problems relationally is because of what's going on among you or between you and another person. But he says, you got to look deeper than that. The problem between you and another problem person is not uh, between you, it's inside you. In other words, the conflict among you is the result of conflict within you. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the people that we're close to are the people that we end up hurting the worst. I mean, why is, is that? that? James says it's because there's this battle raging in our hearts that we cannot contain, and consequently the people closest to us are going to be hit by the shrapnel of our internal battles. Now hear me, this, this, uh, this applies to both parties in any conflict. It certainly applies to the person who is acting in an ugly, mean, deceitful, untrustworthy, emotionally abusive way. And James says you're acting that way because of the internal battle that's inside you. You have to be in control of everything. You have to have your way. You're trying to make the other person over into your own image. That's living by... Uh, earthly, me first wisdom rather than godly wisdom, which is pure and peaceful, peaceable and gentle and open to reason and humble. But here's where it gets really hard because James says this also applies to the person who's being sinned against. Now, let me pause a minute to talk about what the battle is for you if you're on the receiving end of being sinned against. This is why this is so hard to accept. Because you see, if, if, you're hurt, if, if you hurt me or you've disappointed me and I'm, I'm mad at, at you, then in one sense, I think that I have a kind of leverage over you because anger and resentment give me the feeling of leverage. 
In other words, when I'm angry with you, it feels like I'm up here and you're down here. And, and, and that feels good to me because it's easier to be angry than to be hurt. Because when, when, uh, if I acknowledge my hurt, and then, then, then I'm down here and you're up here. And that doesn't feel so good to me. But the moment that I say, well, it's partly my fault or it's mostly my fault or the problem is in me, I understand that. The moment I begin to take a responsibility for my bad attitude, then I lose my supposed leverage, and there's something kind of self-righteous in me that wants to hold on to my anger and use it as leverage against the people who've done me wrong, but I have to let go of that. The moment, the moment I see the foolishness of that way of thinking and embrace godly wisdom, the moment I begin to see as God sees and own the fact that God says there's something in me that's the big part of the problem, then I lose my leverage because suddenly I'm, I'm partly to blame and I don't want to be the blame, or maybe I am the blame, because I want you to be the blame. So my temptation and your temptation in relational trials and troubles is to deal with relational problems on a purely surface level, because I can easily point to the things that you said and the things that you did, and I can build a case against you, and I can blame you, but James says, God doesn't see it that way. You want to be wise? You want understanding? Understand this. Take this by faith. External conflict is caused by an internal conflict that you cannot contain. Conflict among you comes from conflict within you. The battles between you and another person are caused by the battles within you that rage out of control. And if you and I accept that wisdom, if we would by, live by faith, in that wisdom, it would begin to change us from the inside out. Now, I am not saying it's going to solve all your relationship problems because you can't control what other people say and do to you, but it can change you deep inside so that you have an internal peace that would allow you to respond in ways that are pure and peaceable and kind and humble and open to reason. The Holy Spirit is telling us this simple yet hard to accept truth. It's a truth that has the power to change you and change the way that you handle and respond to every difficult relationship you find yourself in. Verse 1 again, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that you, your passions are at war within you? Verse 2, here it is, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, the NIV kind of just boils it down to this. You want something, but you don't get it. You want something, but you don't get it. Here's what God says. The reason you are fussing and fighting is because you want something and you're not getting it. You want something and you're not getting what you want, and that makes you angry and blaming. I know, I'm telling you, this is so hard to accept. But I'm begging you to try to stay open to what the Holy Spirit is saying in this text. Because, yes, again, James is definitely calling out the perpetrators of the pain and the hurt inflicted on us. But he's also trying to help us to be wise. He's trying to help us have an internal peace in the absence of external peace. And James says, and Paul says, and Peter says, and Jesus says, it's possible to have bad things done to you 
evil things done to you and not return evil for evil, but to return good for evil and even blessing for evil. Now, I've talked to a lot of angry people. Sometimes that angry person is standing right there in the mirror in front of me in the morning. And every one of them tell me stories of what someone did to them or didn't do for them. But when it comes right down to it, there's something that they want, they can't get it. And when when they don't get it, they're angry. And listen, your complaint might even be valid. He promised you a lifetime of faithfulness, but he wasn't. And of course, you're hurt. And, and, And you agonize and you battle with anger. But underneath that, there's something you wanted and you didn't get it. And all the inner turmoil, all the unhappiness and resentment and discontentment is coming not from what was done to you, but from what's going on inside you. You want something, you didn't get it. Look at what James says. What's the cause of all your fussing and fighting? It's what the other person did. No, he doesn't say that, does it? It's not what he did or she promised that she didn't do or what you thought was owed you. James says if you're going to be wise, if you're going to live life from God's perspective, if you're going to act in faith, if you're ever going to move past the inner turmoil you're holding on to, you got to come to this conclusion. That is the reason that I'm angry, depressed, bothered, frustrated, bitter, resentful, bottom line, whether I was a victim or not, bottom line, there's something I wanted and I just didn't get it. Didn't get my way. Now, if you're a parent, it's easy to recognize this in our children, isn't it? I mean, what do children fight about? Well, I mean, our kids fought about who, who, who gets to sit in what seat. And, and I got four toys, but he has five. Or why, do, why does he get to stay, she gets to stay up later than me and I have to go to bed now? Or how come I didn't get any of any of that? And, and, and she got to go last time, but I didn't. And we We listen to our children argue as a parent, and we look at all of that, and we say, hey, those aren't the issues. You're just a bunch of selfish kids. (laughs) The issue is you want your way, and never once in the middle of one of those arguments did one of my kids say, you know, Dad, I've been thinking, I just realized the problem is I just want my way. That's really the problem, Dad. It's, It's not really who gets to ride shotgun in the car. It's not that, that she got more Hershey kisses than me. I can see it now. I don't know why I've been blind to it for so long. But, it, 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 but, but uh, the problem's me, and I just, I, I really need to work on me. Never happens, right? But as parents, we see the problem is really selfishness, but we don't see it in ourselves, right? But God, your heavenly Father, sees it that way, and he says... He says, it's not that he got the raise and you didn't. It's not that she broke her promise. It's not that she talks bad about you. It's not any of that. He's saying, come on, grow up. You're, you're mad, you're upset, you're angry, bottom line, because you wanted something and you didn't get it. And if you're ever going to move past what happened or what was done to you, you got to own that simple truth. Own the fact that the real problem from God's perspective is in you. It's not between you and the other person. You have to own that. Because, and I, I struggle with it because I want, I want you to see things my way. I want you to do things my way. I want you to acknowledge that my way is better. I want you to do something for me. I want you to value me and love me and treat me with respect. I want you to promise to keep your promise and keep it. And hear me again, I, some of these things are legitimate desires and they're reasonable expectations. 
They might, they're, they're, they're things that you, you could rightfully expect from a, a faithful friend or a family member or a loving spouse or a good parent or a fair, bo- fair boss. This is what people should do. But James, in some way, he kind of sounds like a modern-day Dr. Phil. I mean, if you go to Barnes and Nobles and you look at books, the books in the uh, How to Live Life and Be Happy secular literature section, every one of them will tell you this, this one truth. They will say, you cannot control your circumstances. You cannot control uh, others, other people and their reactions and what they say and do. You can only control your reaction to circumstances and people. And James would agree with that. Now, he's not giving us pop psychology. He's giving us wisdom from above. And he says, if you're ever going to move past the root of your unhappiness and anger and discontentment, you got to own what's going on inside of you. And once you own it, yep, you'll lose your supposed leverage, but it diffuses the anger. And then you face that person hoping to make peace, which may or may not be possible. You might even have to make a hard decision to get away from that person. You may need to go to some counseling and have somebody help you work through all that. But even then, God says, it's possible to do those hard things in a way that you have internal peace. But it all begins when you embrace the fact that the root cause of the conflict is you are just not getting your way. And that's tough, isn't it? I mean, that is really tough. Now, then he goes on to describe what we do to get our way. He says, verse 2, you desire and you don't have. In other words, you want something, you don't get it. So you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. In other words, you don't get what you want. And so you fight and quarrel. He says, when you don't get what you want, you do whatever you have to do to get it. And if you don't get it, you murder people. Now, obviously, when he uses the word murder, he's not saying that the people in that, the local churches were literally murdering each other. But like Jesus said, the anger and hatred that we harbor in our hearts against other people, God sees that kind of on the same level, heart level, as murder. Because that's what's going on in our hearts. James is saying, let's face it, think of what you've done to other people in order to get your way. Think of what you've uh, done to your spouse trying to get your way. Think of what you've done to your children trying to get your way. Think of what you've done to the people that you go to school with trying to get your way. Think of the people you run over. And I mean, in some cases, you've destroyed their friendships with other people or ruined their reputations just because you wanted to get your way. You do anything and everything you can to get your way. James says you kill and you covet. Now, there are two Greek words in the New Testament for coveting. One is a fairly common word, and the other is only used rarely, about 10 times. This is the rare word. And it doesn't mean covet in the sense that I, I'm, I'm, I covet something internally and nobody knows about it. This little Greek word means to hotly pursue something. It means I just can't let go of it. I can't get it off my mind. I go on and on about it. I run, into, I run it into the ground. I always go back to it in any argument and pull out the past and bring it forward. And and, and and I'm willing to ruin a relationship to prove I'm right and you're wrong. He he says he says you want something and you hotly pursue it and it doesn't matter what you have to do to other people to get it. Earthly wisdom he says that's earthly wisdom, selfish ambition. It's unspiritual. He calls it 
demonic. And then you look at what he says in verse 2. He says, you, uh, he says uh, you kill and you covet, and at the end of the day, when you used, all up, used up all your tricks and all your manipulation and all your threats, and you still don't get what you think you, you deserve, you go right back to the same fussing and fighting. It's just like a cycle. It just goes on and on and on. You see, we, and this is absolutely a we sermon. We have this thing in us. You can call it the flesh. You can call it old programming or the self. We all have this thing inside of us that can never be satisfied. And I think like you think, that if I keep feeding the self, then one day self is going to go, oh, I am full. Man, I'm finally content. I'm satisfied. I got everything I need. I don't need any more love. I don't need any more relationships. I don't need any more approval or recognition or appreciation. I don't even need any more money or possessions. I'm full. Yeah, you're full of it. That's, that's, that's probably the thing. We think that by feeding our appetites, we're going to satisfy our appetites, but that's not true. You can't satisfy an appetite or it wouldn't be an appetite, right? I mean, how many times have you finished a meal and you said, Man, that was so good. I'll never have to eat again. <laughs> uh, never. It doesn't work that way. I mean, 20 minutes later, you're rambling through the pantry or the fridge looking for something to eat. Appetite. That's actually the word that James uses here for desires and pleasures and passions. It's, a word, it's the word hedonism, the desire for pleasure, the desire to pursue pleasure and happiness at all costs. An appetite for what we want. It's all the same word. And we all have an appetite for what we think will make us happy, and we hotly pursue it, but self will never be satisfied this side of heaven. I got a relationship appetite. I got a, a reputation appetite, a respect appetite, an acceptance appetite, an approval appetite, a financial appetite, all kinds of appetites that I look to for happiness and security and significance. And I try to find life in those things by feeding all these appetites. And we think that if we can just feed these appetites, then one day I'll finally come to the place where I sit back and say, finally, I have all that I need. Not going to happen. The truth is, every time you feed an appetite, it increases the capacity for the appetite to never go away. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, a glutton thinks as much about food as a starving man. Isn't that interesting? A glutton thinks about food as much as a man starving to death. The glutton is full, overly full, but he never thinks, I've had enough. No, food is all he thinks about. It's like the theologian and, and a songwriter uh, Mick Jagger says, I can't get no satisfaction. Never satisfied. And we believed a lie. We, we, we've been deceived into thinking that if I can just get from you what I think I need, acceptance, approval, love, respect, support, whatever, if I can just get full on all those things, I'll stay full forever. But that's earthly wisdom. Doesn't work that way. And James, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us, Heavenly wisdom tells us at the end of the day, when you've done everything you can to get everything you want, when all is said and done, and you're still not, you're, you're not going to have everything that you want, and that just means you're still going to be unhappy, and you're still going to be angry, and you're still going to be discontent, and you're still going to fuss and fight and quarrel and blame someone 
to get your way. And he says this will go on and on and on and on and on unless you become wise and see as God sees. But you know what we do? We try to squeeze our happiness out of the people and environments that are closest to us. Like we get married and we say, all my happiness is bottled, right, bottled up right there inside this, this one person. And then we squeeze them to try to get our happiness out of that person. And that, that means that they, we both end up squeezing each other and then we wonder what happened when the relationship breaks down. And, and we think, well, look, if you would just do these five things that my way, the way I want you to do them, then I'd be happy. It's just these five things. I mean, do you see how destructive that is? I'm unhappy because of my job. I'm unhappy because of my boss. I'm discontent because I don't make enough money. All my problems are out there. And all those things I want or think I need or think I deserve. And I keep trying to squeeze my happiness out of all those things. But guess what? Your ultimate happiness is not found in any of those things. And you know what else? There's probably someone in your life that's feeling squeezed right now. There's someone that you have made to feel responsible for your unhappiness, and you, you married them, or you went into business with them, or you work with them, or you go to school with them, and, it's, and, 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 and the relationship is just not what you thought it was going to be, and you squeeze in them, and they feel you're trying to make them feel responsible uh, uh, for not giving you what you want. They're just not what you wanted them to be. And James says, Come on, grow up, wise up, listen up. Now, he uses a lot stronger language than that. So I'm toning James down. He actually calls them spiritual adulterers here in a minute. But he, he, says, he, says, he says, this is, this is a truth. This is wisdom that can change your life. It can transform your relationships. It can put you on a path to an inner peace that passes all understanding. He says, wise up, admit it. My problem with you is me. It's not all you. It's a battle in me. And when you own what's going on inside of you, when you own what God says is going on inside of you, you begin to change from the inside out. And this is all a matter of faith, isn't it? James is saying your faith, if it's going to make a difference in your life relationally, you got to see the source of your relationship problems through this lens, the conflict between you comes from conflict inside you. And that's what the rest of the chapter is about. James calls this earthly wisdom that he's been talking about, he calls it friendship with the world. He calls it spiritual adultery in verses 4 and 5. He calls it pride and arrogance in 6 through 10. He says it leads to speaking evil against people and wrongly judging other people in verses 11 and 12. And he's calling us to live by faith. He's encouraging us to be wise. As Matt Dinsky wisely said last week, wise people understand God's ways and submit their lives to them. Wise people understand what God's ways. They understand what God says, and they submit their lives to him. So, and to be wise, listen, to be wise in God's ways, you need to own what's going on inside you. Look at verse 2 again. You don't get what you want, so you kill and you covet and you fuss and you fight. And then he says, bottom line, you don't have because you don't ask. It's like he says, have you, have you ever thought about praying about any of this stuff? You ever got on your knee, knees and said, God, I'm a mess inside. 
God, I'm so unhappy. I'm so discontent. I blame everybody else, but I know the problem is me. The problem's in me. You ever said, God, what that person said about me hurt me. What that person did to me has made me so angry, but I don't want to burn with anger. I don't want to burn with bitterness. I don't want bitterness to define me. You ever ask, God, what are you trying to teach me in this situation where I'm not getting what I want or think I need or think I deserve? I know you've allowed this to come into my life for a reason. You've allowed it because you want to stretch me and strengthen me and refine my faith. And I know, I know if I blame everything and everybody else, I'll miss you in the midst of all this. I'll miss what you're doing in the midst of all this. And I don't want that to happen, God. You ever thought about praying like that? God says you have not because you ask not. Now, here's the deal. Prayer is not about getting what you want from God. It's about finding out what God is doing and bringing your wants in line with his will. Prayer is not about getting, simply getting what you want from God. It's about finding out what God is doing and bringing your wants in line with his will. And God's greatest desire is to work deep in our hearts to give us an inner peace and an inner confidence that transcends what happens to us or what people do or don't do to us. He wants us to see God as the source of all the good things that come into our life. God and God alone. Remember James chapter 1, verse 17, where James said, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Test question, which good and perfect gifts come from God? All of them, right? All of them, every one of them, all good gifts come from God. And James is expanding on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. Your heavenly Father is the source of everything you need. So James says, hello, wake up, wise up. The reason you don't have some of this stuff is because you've never invited God into the situation. And, and, and if you pray about it and you still don't get it, guess what? Evidently, right now, you don't need it. Because if you really needed it, then God would provide it. In other words, if the thing you want so badly was really good for you, God would give it to you because all good gifts come from Him. That means, that means the next time your wife or your friend or your boss or your family member lets you down, instead of going in there and letting them have it, you, you, you pray about it. You, you turn to God. You say, God, I'm hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm angry. I, I deserve better than this. God, my parents don't understand. I'm lonely. But God, I know they're not the source. You're the source. And if you're not allowing this at this time, I'm not going to blame them or hang all this on them. I'm going to give it to you. In other words, he's saying, pray about these things. Don't pout about them and don't power your way into them, uh, through them. <laughs> but James is not finished talking about prayer. Verse 3 he says, uh, you ask and you don't receive because, oh, you're going to have to have thick skin for this. You ask with wrong motives. You only want what gives you pleasure. You see what he's saying? He's saying why you pray is more important than what you pray for. Why you pray is more important than what you pray for. It's not necessarily wrong to ask God for things like a new job or a better marriage or a new car or to be appreciated for the things you do or to be treated fairly. 
Those things aren't necessarily wrong. Again, a lot of the things we want are legitimate desires and reasonable expectations. But when those desires turn into demands and demands turn into blaming others as the cause of your unhappiness, and then you pray, listen, you pray out of that inner conflict asking God to give you what you want, it may very well be that you're asking with wrong motives. You see, when God says no to something you ask for, Take it by faith that he knows best. He knows that thing is not a good gift for you, at least not at that moment. Faith says he's a wise heavenly father. He is a good heavenly father, and we need to accept his nose as good and perfect gifts as much as his yeses. You see, you see, God's not going to answer any prayer that helps you squeeze your happiness or contentment out of someone else. Listen, it's a whole different way of thinking. It's radical. It's hard to accept, but it's heavenly wisdom. It's, it's real Christianity. It's abundant life. It's putting your faith into action, and it'll free you to do two things at least. First, it'll free you to admit, I'm angry, and I'm hurt, and I'm resentful because I didn't get what I want. And to see that and confess that, that's healthy, and it's wisdom, and it's maturity, and it's reality, according to God. And second, it'll free you to live a life of faith, trusting that your Heavenly Father gives you good gifts so that when you don't have something you want or think you need or feel you deserve, you still believe that God is working in that trial for your good. God promises you that every good and perfect gift you really need, you will receive. But at the same time, he's going to protect you from things that have a tendency that maybe you have a tendency to pursue, but he knows it has the potential to ruin your life. Let's let's admit it. There are some things that you manipulated and finagled your way into that you later regretted, right? Right? I mean, that relationship that went bad, getting yourself into financial debt, saying some awful hurtful thing that left a wound or a scar so deep the person is still trying to recover from it. And why did that happen? Well, maybe rather than trusting God to be the source of what you really truly need, you looked to yourself as the source of all good things, and you decided, if I'm ever going to have it, I'm going to have to take it or get it the best way I can. I'm going to have to make it happen. And that mindset made a mess out of your life or a part of your life. And God is saying to everyone, every one of us, why would you want to live that way? That's earthly wisdom. And God says, you won't find life that way. You won't be wise that way. You won't learn to walk by faith that way. The alternative is heavenly wisdom, which sees God as the source of all good gifts and which also says anything you don't have, it must be because God knows you don't really need it, at least not right now. And God says if you embrace that wisdom by faith, you'll find an inner peace you didn't know was possible. Now, this inner peace, it goes in and out. I mean, circumstance change, but you, you can always come back to this solid foundation. Now, isn't that a better way to live? I mean, can you see the difference that that would make in your life? It, it may not change the other person. 
but it'll change what's going on inside of you. So you quit trying to squeeze something you want out of somebody who may very well be incapable of giving it to you. It can transform inner turmoil into inner peace. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely the best, best way to live. To look at God as the source of all good things. To ask Him for what you want. And if He doesn't give it to Him, you, give it to you, you trust that it must not be the best thing for you, you right now. <laughs> yeah, that's the... There's, there's an incredible freedom in that. And James tells us in the same passage how, how we grow wise in a faith like that. Verse 7, he says, So humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world, between heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Now, you you need to see, this is not a grocery list of like a whole bunch of like do's and don'ts that James goes... Okay, what am I going to write next? I better just throw all this in. It all ties together. Like to admit that our real problem is in here rather than out there requires humility. To resist the devil is to resist leaning into the me first earthly wisdom that the devil tempts you to believe. To draw near to God is to admit where you've been wrong, sincerely confessing to God with tears that you've wrongly blamed others when God, it was God that was saying no to you. And you draw near to God like that, pouring your heart out to Him, and He will draw near to you. You see how it all ties together? These aren't random topics. These are the kind of mental adjustments and emotional adjustments and faith adjustments that we have to make in order to grow wise in faith in relational trials. The conflict among you is the result of conflict within you. The source of the missing peace in our life is in here. It's not out there. And even if you really are the victim, even if you've been seriously wronged, even if the other person bears most of the blame, still, God says... Humble yourself, own what's going on inside of you, own what you think is owed you or what you deserve, own what you're doing that makes things even worse, draw near to God, tell Him everything in your heart, and He'll draw near to you. Because you see, when you look to God as the source of what you really need, He will set you free, and you will have an internal peace that's present in the absence of external peace. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words from James. They are hard words to hear, but even harder to live. But we want to acknowledge to you that There is wisdom here. And I think we want to say to you that we want to live wisely by faith, 
taking you at your word. Don't want to keep throwing stuff up before you saying, yeah, that's true, but we need to see as you see, so we do as you say. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.